Hello? 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 Yes, this is MCO. Hello? This is MCO. Hello? Hello? This is another MCO and transmission. Welcome, everyone, back to Sutra Study Sunday, uh, the Vimalakirti Sutra, part two. Uh, if you weren't here last week, I am going to do just a very quick recap of the first six chapters that we covered last Sunday. And my idea is to finish it. So there's 12 chapters in total. So we'll do the next six chapters. That's the idea. But I have no, uh, I'm in no rush. So if we don't do it all, then we'll finish it next week. Let's uh, take our time. Yeah, I know. I want to take our time. But as I mentioned last week, uh, this is sort of a big advertisement for the Vimalakirti Sutra, and I'm not here to read every word, go through every line. I am trying to tell you the whole story so that you can appreciate the story, because I think it's like so many Mahayana Sutras, it's very layered. (laughs) There's a lot going on. There's a lot of intense dialogue. There's a lot of imagery, all of these things, and so... This is sort of your intro to the whole story so that you can go back and actually read through the dialogues and read through each chapter. At least that's the idea. Um, If you weren't here last week, again, this is uh, called the Vimalakirti Nirdesha Sutra or the advice of Vimalakirti. Vimalakirti is the, the hero, if you will, of this sutra. He's the star of the show. Um, For those that are historically minded, um, you should know, a good frame of reference is to know that there was a, a monk, a Buddhist monk, from what we today call Afghanistan, that region, Gandhara, back in the day, his day. Um, his name was Lokashema. And Lokashema was this monk from Afghanistan that went all the way to China, went to the capital of China, And we know with some pretty high degree of accuracy, we know that in the year 188, common era, he, Lokashema, translated the Vimalakirti Sutra from Sanskrit, maybe, Gandharan, probably. We're not quite sure what the original language was, but this guy Lokashema translated the Vimalakirti Sutra into Chinese in the year 188. And like we know that, if you, again, if you're a historian and you're somebody like me, that's very critical of sources, very skeptical of sources, always wanting to know, like not just what is the original source, but wanting to know what is the original manuscript, what was the archaeological de- de- dig that they found it in. Like I want to know the re- like where these things really come from. So if you are interested in that, you should know that 188 is a pretty solid date for this book. And I mentioned last week that if this monk from Afghanistan is translating this in China in 188, then it's probably a little older than that. So you can safely probably say that this is at least 2,000 years old, pretty safely, if not more than that, because, of course, it is presenting itself as a teaching of the Buddha. But as we've already seen, it's kind of a special sutra in that way, that it's sort of quite a story. And in, in many ways, so far, the Buddha isn't even the star of the show. It's this guy, Vimalakirti. Um, very quickly, the, the, the story so far. In the very first chapter, 
some two miraculous things happen. And in fact, this whole sutra is really um, focused on this idea of miracles or these like really fantastic events. And two of them happen in the first chapter. And I've often said that the first chapter of a Mahayana Sutra is almost invariably a, uh, an encapsulation of the whole sutra. So there, these things happen in the first chapter of all these Mahayana Sutras that are sometimes like, whoa, what's going on here? And it's only after you read the whole sutra that you're like, oh, wow, that, that first chapter was about that. And so, in the first chapter of the Vimalakirti Sutra, two things happen of note. Uh, a lot of great dialogue, discourse, and all that. But one thing that happens is, is the, Buddha, the Buddha is in a place called Vaishali. Vaishali is a town, a city in, in India. And in Vaishali, the Buddha's there. This is how it starts. The Buddha's there. And there was a bodhisattva, an enlightened being, um, a Lichavi, and the Lichavi are like a kind of a clan of people in Vaishali. They're like a group of people. And so this Bodhisattva, a Lichavi called, uh, what's his name? Da, 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 da. Very quickly. Uh, Ratnakara. So this Lichavi Ratnakara with 500 of his friends, basically 500 Lichavi youths, they all go to see the Buddha. Very excited to see the Buddha. And they all present him with these parasols, uh, umbrellas for the sun. And they are made of the seven jewels. Uh, so they are bejeweled parasols. And they all offer 501 these parasols to the Buddha. And then the Buddha, by his miraculous power, transforms these 501 parasols into one giant parasol that covers the whole, basically the city of Vaishali, it seems like. And in this singular canopy that is made of the seven jewels, so it's bejeweled canopy, in this jeweled canopy, everyone can see multiple world systems in the distance. They can see other planets, other universes, other dimensions. Again, what are Buddha lands? What are these other places? We don't. You know, I, I am not going to say what they are definitively. But this miraculous transformation of the parasols into one giant parasol kind of gives everyone a view into this kind of multifold world system. And then underneath this canopy, there is a discourse that happens in which one of the Shravakas, a, an early disciple of the Buddha, an Arhat, um, Sort of in modern nomenclature, this would be a, a Theravada monk. It's a little anachronistic to use that term here, but that's the idea. So anyways, this uh, monk Shariputra, he says to the Buddha, this is all in the first chapter, he says, hey, I heard that when a Buddha is in the world, that world becomes a Buddha land. It's titled the first chapter. That world becomes a Buddha land and becomes totally purified. Yet you're the Buddha, you're in this world, this is a Buddha land, and yet everywhere I see around me, it's just terrible. It's terrible. It's like everything I see is a source of suffering. It's basically just a giant mound of dung, is what Shariputra says. And at that point, the Buddha 
uh, who is always seated full lotus, unfolds his lotus posture and he touches his big toe, one of his big toe to the ground. And at that very moment, the whole world, our world called Saha, our Saha world, is immediately transformed for Shariputra. And all of a sudden, everybody's sitting on these these bejeweled lotus flowers and it's like radiant light everywhere and it's beautiful and he's like, oh my God, it is a Buddha land. And then as soon as the Buddha lifts his toe, bam, Shariputra's right back to that world of dung that he found himself in. But he realized, oh, it's not that the Buddha's land, the Buddha land is impure. My mind's impure. That's why I see the world like this. That's sort of the the heart of that first chapter. We, so we have this notion of purifying Buddha lands. What does that mean? And then this sort of notion in, within the context of this sutra, we start to see that these Buddha lands are maybe frames of mind, right? And so Shariputra's mind is sort of still impure, and so he's living in an impure world. But the notion being that the bodhisattvas and Buddhas their minds are pure, and so they're seeing jeweled lotuses and bodhisattvas everywhere. Right. So again, that's sort of the, the miracu- two miraculous events that happened in the first chapter, and that's sort of the whole message of the sutra right there. So again, if you're going to get a copy of this and read it, I encourage you to read that ch- first chapter with that in mind. Like, oh, this is the whole message of the sutra in here. But the story then unfolds in chapter 2 which is called upaya, or skillful means. These are these sort of um, um, very, very skillful teaching techniques of Buddhas and Bodhisattvas. And these teaching techniques, these upaya, these skillful means are these ways of delivering the Dharma, ways of delivering the teaching that... Uh, may be different from person to person, from moment to moment. It's never the same. And what makes a bodhisattva skilled in upaya is the bodhisattva's ability to know just the right thing to say at just the right time for that person that will make them be like, oh, I get it. The idea being that the bodhisattva knows like, oh, you're, you're an architect, you went to school, you worked hard, you have this kind of mind, you think this way, and so if I give you an architecture example, da 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 like that's perfect for you. But if I tell that example to somebody else who's never went to architecture school and isn't really super you know, intellectual, it's not going to be very skillful. So Vimalakirti, who is heralded in this chapter as the bodhisattva of all bodhisattvas, I mean, he's really, um, I mean, he has, you know, several paragraphs dedicated to just how amazing of a bodhisattva he is. But the interesting thing about Vimalakirti, his upaya, if you will, is that he's very wealthy, but basically lives as if he's poor. He spends a lot of time in like casinos and gambling parlors, but only to convert gamblers and, and you know, people that hang out in those places. Um, he's, uh, I mean, it goes on and on, and I'm, gonna, I'm, I'm trying to avoid rereading anything from here because I will just get stuck. But the idea is, is that he says, that it says that Vimalakirti, he wears the white robes of a layman, yet he's basically revered as a Buddha, he follows all the rules of being a monk naturally, even though he doesn't take the vows. So it's this whole thing about how he, he's the wisest bodhisattva 
in Vaishali, but he's a layperson that lives in a big fancy house. So he's a unique bodhisattva in that way. And as in Upaya, as a skillful means, in this second chapter when we're introduced to him, he performs a miracle in which it appears as if he's sick. And everybody in the city of Vaishali hears that, that the Malakirti's sick, and so they all go to see him. But one of the things that I was trying to do last week was remind everybody that... Sorry, everyone's squeaking. I was trying to remind everybody... <laughs> I was trying to remind everybody last week that this sutra is very funny. It, it, it is funny. It's meant to be funny. It's employing humor as an upaya, as a skillful means. And so it does this funny thing where it says, uh, um, well, it happens in a, in a moment, but that Vimalakirti, he makes his house empty. No furniture, no this, no that. But they're being funny in a Buddhist way by talking about it as being empty. Because, of course, this is a Mahayana Sutra, so the philosophical underpinning is the very notion of emptiness, which we will talk about. But the sutra is funny because it's going to be playing these little word games and language games that if you don't know it's trying to be funny, you might miss it. And as soon as you know, like, oh, no, they're trying to be funny, you can have a really good time with this sutra. Um, in the second chapter, uh, Vimalakirti makes himself sick. He's, uh, there's a lot of iconography of Vimalakirti where he's sitting in a four-post bed. It's a tall four-post bed. And if you are familiar with Buddhist discipline or Buddhist rules, there's actually a, a rule in Buddhism. Traditionally, lay people and monks alike are not supposed to sleep on a high bed. You're basically supposed to sleep on the ground. That's sort of a rule in Buddhism. But all immediately, we are recognizing that Vimalakirti is different. He's sleeping on a high bed. So it's kind of like, huh, what's going on with that? So I just want you to notice or note that there are these little uh, critiques going on of earlier, older Theravada Buddhism, like notions of not sleeping on a high bed. Everybody comes, everybody from the city of Vaishali comes to uh, pay their respects to Vimalakirti, and he gives a Dharma talk to everybody in Vaishali. That's what happens in chapter two. Chapter three, the Buddha, who's, he's over in some other place. He's in Vaishali, but he's over with all of his monks. He hears that Vimalakirti's sick. And so he says to all of his uh, monks, the Shravakas, the voice hearers, he says to each of them one at a time, hey, Shariputra, why don't you go check on Vimalakirti and see how he's doing? And Shariputra goes, uh, I don't know if I can really go see Vimalakirti because this one time, and then Shariputra relays a story about how Vimalakirti just completely schools him on wisdom and makes him basically like, well, I, don't even, I didn't even know anything until I met Vimalakirti. And so I don't know if I'm really ready to go see Vimalakirti. And so then the Buddha goes to the next monk and says, hey, how do, Maguyana, why don't you go see Vimalakirti? And Maguyana's like, I really can't go see Vimalakirti because this one time he totally schooled me on what wisdom really is. So, you know, I really don't think I can see him. And so one after the next after the next, all of the Shravakas 
the voice hearers, those monks, one by one, they all, they all say, no, I can't really go see him. So then in the fourth chapter, the Buddha says, okay, all the monks, all the shravakas, they can't handle the Malakirti. So then he turns his attention to all the bodhisattvas. Now, of course, keep in mind, these bodhisattvas are like upper-level bodhisattvas. And one by one, starting with Maitreya, he goes through all the bodhisattvas, and they relate a story about how they ran into Malakirti. They told, he totally schooled them on real wisdom. And so one by one, the bodhisattvas say, I really can't go see him. And so again, this sutra is trying to be funny in doing this, by having all these bodhisattvas go like, no, no, there's no way I could talk to that guy. It's supposed to be funny. It's also a narrative story where the hype around Vimalakirti is like building and building. This is all hype, two chapters of hype of like, whoa, why don't these guys want to go see this guy? Who is this guy? That's the idea of chapter three and four is that you're supposed to really be like, who is this guy? And then we get to chapter five, when the bodhisattva named Manjushri, who is the bodhisattva of wisdom, he finally basically says the same thing, like, that guy is crazy, but I'll go. <laughs> Manjushri is at least willing to go. And so Manjushri shows up, uh, he notices that the house is empty. Chapter five is this dialogue between Manjushri and Vimalakirti. That's sort of the heart of it. Again, I don't want to get too into reading the specifics, but just to give you a little taste of the dialogue, which I don't think I did last time. Um, Manjushri's asking this, like, why is your house so empty? Why don't you have any servants or any furniture? And Vimalakirti says, Manjushri, because all Buddha fields are empty. What makes them empty, Manjushri asks. They are empty because of emptiness. But what is Empty about emptiness. Constructions are empty because of emptiness. Can emptiness be conceptually constructed? Even that concept is itself empty. And emptiness cannot construct emptiness. So this is the dialogue. This really crazy dialogue of two people who are trying to be completely non-dualistic. And not attached to anything. And they just kind of keep passing it back and forth like this. They're very funny dialogues. And then, if, and then if you're interested in these ideas, again, I encourage you to read them in detail because they're funny, they're, they're interesting. But that is the bulk of that chapter is just the dialogue between the two of them. Um, I could go on and on. But then we get to chapter six. This is where we ended last time. And chapter six is yet another miracle. So what happens in chapter six is that Shariputra, who is, again, this representative of the old school Theravada way, the representative of the Shravakas. Shariputra, just chapter after chapter, just keeps getting ridiculed for how dumb he is, one after the next. And so all of a sudden, this chapter begins with this great line in which uh, Shariputra is looking around and he says, there's not even a single chair in this house. Where are all these disciples, monks and bodhisattvas going to sit? And then the Lechavi Vimalakirti read the mind of the Venerable Shariputra and said, Hey, Shariputra, did you come here for the sake of the Dharma or did you come for the sake of a chair? Great line. <laughs> Great line. <laughs> right? 
right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> but then, of course, it goes even further with this idea where he's saying, Sharputra, the Dharma, you know, um, uh, the Dharma, the real Dharma is without taint, it's free from defilement. Uh, the person who's attached to anything, even to liberation, is not interested in the Dharma, but is interested in the taints of desire. Dharma is not an object. He who pursues objects is not interested in the Dharma, but they're interested in pursuing objects. And this is this great chapter where it's like, um, the Dharma is not a secure refuge. He who enjoys a secure refuge is not interested in the Dharma. They're interested in a secure refuge. So it goes on and on. Great, amazing, beautiful uh, paragraph. But finally, though, eventually what happens is, because there is nowhere for, there is no place for people to sit, the Buddha says to Manjushri, this wise bodhisattva of wisdom, and says, hey, You've been everywhere. You've been to like every Buddha land and every universe everywhere. Where do they have the best thrones? <laughs> and Man and, and Manjushri says, Manjushri says, well, you know, I've been all over the place, but there is this one Buddha land called Merudivaja. And in that, in that land, there's a Buddha called Meru Pradiparaja. And by the way, this Meru Divaja and Meru Pradiparaja, the root of these is Meru which is that giant mountain. And the idea is, is that this Buddha, Maru Pradiparaja, is as big as Mount Maru. And so his throne that he sits in is like really big, right? <laughs> so what happens is, is that Manjushri says, yeah, in that land, beautiful thrones. And so what happens is that then... Yeah, how does it, how does it happen? This is still Vamalakirti and um, the other joker. What's his name? Um, <laughs> so what happens is is that Manjushri. So okay, after all the disciples say can't do, it, I can't go talk to to Vimalakirti, and all the bodhisattvas say can't go talk to him. When Manjushri says, "I'll go check on him. I'll go check on him." All the monks and all the bodhisattvas are like behind him. <laughs> like, whoa, like what's going to happen? So they all go. The idea, though, is that the Buddha doesn't go. And this is important to the narrative of something that's going to happen in, in a few chapters. But the Buddha is staying wherever he's staying. And it's only Manjushri and Shariputra and all the monks and everybody that goes to see Vimalakirti. Mm -hmm. Vimalakirti and Manjushri have this little one-off. Shariputra chimes in and is like, yo, there's nowhere to sit. Then he says, what'd you come here for? Chair of the Dharma. And then eventually, um, sorry, you're right, because it's Vimalakirti who says to Manjushri, yo, Manjushri, you've been everywhere. Where do they have the best thrones? He says, Marudivaja, they have the best thrones. And so from Marudivaja, trying to exactly read how this happens, but basically what happens is, is that from the canopy that we're under, these giant thrones descend from the sky and fill the Malkirti's house. They are these hundreds of thousands of leagues tall, bejeweled thrones. And as soon as they, these thrones enter the Malkirti's house, some of the bodhisattvas just, just grow and sit down on their thrones. But Shariputra and a few other people are like, ah. How am I supposed to sit on that? That's ginormous. I, I can't do it. And so what happens is, is that 
Vimalakirti says, well, basically, if you pray to the Buddha called Marudivyaja, and if you sort of surrender yourself to him, you'll be able to sit on these thrones. So there's a mix of pure land devotionalism in here that then allows Shariputra and all the other lesser monks and bodhisattvas to grow and sit on these giant thrones. And I ended last week by going off on this whole thing about sovereignty and independence and this notion of what's going on here in this chapter. And I kind of preface this by saying, like, who sits on a throne? The king or the sovereign, the ruler, the person who makes rules but is not subject to rules. That's who gets to sit on a throne. And so this miracle of these thrones descending and everybody sitting on a throne is this really powerful message of sovereignty, independence, self-sovereignty. Like, and when I say independence, I mean like independent, like freedom. It's, it's kind of a very powerful idea if, if you sit with it for a second. Pardon that. But, but that idea of like, that's what they're talking about is like you, cause usually it's like the king sits on the throne and I'm his subject, right? I'm subject to the king. So when you are the king, you're subject to no one. That's a very powerful statement or a very powerful situation to be in, to not be subject to anyone. I would argue that Buddhas and Bodhisattvas are not subject, not only are they not subject to anyone, they're not subject to anything. Throw out the fourth, the fourth uh, truth. Fourth, the fourth noble truth is like, whatever, whatever, rules don't apply. Kind of. Kind of. Like, if you get to be a super badass... There is, there, is definitely a, a, there is definitely a sense in Buddhism, especially Mahayana Buddhism, that at a certain point, these rules and this dharma have to be let go as well. So in terms of that, yes. Okay, so that's where we are. Everybody's now sitting on their throne, and also this miracle happens where, like, Vimalakirti's house is like a shack in the beginning, but all of a sudden, it kind of keeps growing, and then these giant thrones descend, but there's enough room for everybody to sit, and everybody's actually kind of like, woo, I got plenty of room. So that's where we're at. Everybody good on that? Because we may not get past this chapter. We're, we're going to see. We're going to see. But this chapter... is called the goddess, or the deva. Deva, Devi, Deva, this is the Sanskrit word for these kind of celestial beings, gods or goddesses. And this is a chapter called the goddess, the Devi. Um, so I'm going to kind of read this almost it's in, in its entirety, because it is just way, way too good. Um, so it begins with this uh, dis- a little back and forth between Manjushri and Vimalakirti, classic Manjushri. The crown prince addressed the Lichavi Vimalakirti and said, Good sir, how should a bodhisattva regard all living beings? 
This is a fundamental question in Mahayana Buddhism. I'll, I'll just let Vimal care to answer it, and then if it needs any clarification, I'll, I'll try to assist. So Vimal care to reply, Mandrashri, a bodhisattva should regard all living beings as a wise man regards the reflection of the moon in water. Or as, a, or as magicians regard men created by magic. So bodhisattvas view all sentient beings as like a reflection of the moon in water or like magically created people by magicians. He should regard them as being like a face in a mirror, like the water of a mirage, like the sound of an echo, like a mass of clouds in the sky, like the previous moment of a ball of foam, like the appearance and disappearance of a bubble of water, like the core of a plantain tree, which is hollow, like a flash of lightning, like the fifth great element, akasha, space. That's how you should regard living beings as, as, as space. Uh, like the appearance of matter in an immaterial realm, like a sprout from a rotten seed. This is my personal favorite, like a tortoise hair coat. <laughs> so you will often find the expression in Buddhist sutras like the hair of a tortoise as a paradox. Tortoises don't have hair. So a tortoise hair is like, the, like a unicorn type situation. It's, like you, it's very hard to find a tortoise hair because it's a total paradox. So when he drops a tortoise hair coat, <laughs> that's too funny. Um, so he goes on and on like this about this is the way, the proper way, the wise way to, to consider living beings. Um, I'm skipping a bunch to get to some other ones. Um, like the erection of a eunuch, <laughs> like the pregnancy of a barren woman. It goes on like, like dream visions seeking after waking, like the passions of one who is free from conceptualizations. So all of these things, right? All through a view of emptiness, I'm, I'm going to restrain from doing the emptiness talk. And either you have been here and you kind of get it or we're, we're trudging ahead. But the idea here is, though, this. So because of emptiness, any individual being, essential nature is non-existent in that regard. So it is wise to regard them as like the erection of a eunuch or like a tortoise hair coat and all these different things, right? So precisely thus, Manjushri, does a, does a bodhisattva who realizes ultimate selflessness consider all beings? So then Manjushri asks further, the noble sir, if a bodhisattva considers all li living beings in such a way as you just described, how does he generate the maha-maitri, the great love towards them? Is that not a really important question to ask, right? Because if we're Mahayana Bodhisattvas and we understand emptiness, it's like, well, then how do you generate the great love towards sentient beings if your number one 
operating mode is that there's no such thing as sentient beings, right? It's a great question. So then the Malakirti Ramanjashri, when a bodhisattva considers all living beings in this way, he thinks, just as I have realized the Dharma, so should I teach it to living beings. Thereby he generates the love that is truly a refuge for all living beings. The love that is, a pe that is peaceful because it is free from grasping. A love that is not feverish because it is free from passion. A love that accords with reality because it is equanimous at all times. A love, the love that is without conflict because it is free of violence, it is free from the violence of the passions. A love that is non-dual because it is involved neither with the external nor with the internal. The love that is imperturbable because it is totally ultimate goes on and on. I mean, there's another beautiful chapter here about the, the love. The love. I mean, thereby he generates the love that is firm. It's high resolve, unbreakable, like a diamond. And I actually think they might mean diamond here. Uh, they develop this love that is pure, purified in its intrinsic nature, a love that is even, its aspirations being equal, the saint's love that has eliminated its enemy, the bodhisattva's love that is continuously develops for all living beings, the Buddha's love that understands reality. So it goes on and on. Great. Da, da, da. Okay, yeah. I encourage you to read it. It's really beautiful, but I want to get to the... And it, there's a way in which these narrative points are these like stories that are an upaya for the deep discourse that just happened. So that's another reason why I don't feel entirely like bad skipping over it because I'm going to tell you the story that exemplifies it. So thereupon, after this little discourse about the great love of the Bodhisattva, thereupon a certain goddess who lived in that house, having heard this teaching of the Dharma of the great heroic Bodhisattvas and being delighted, pleased, and overjoyed, manifested herself in a material body and showed the great spiritual heroes, those bodhisattvas, and the great disciples. Oh, sorry. Having heard the Dharma teaching of all the bodhisattvas, and being delighted and pleased, manifested herself in a material body, and showered these great spiritual heroes, the bodhisattvas, and all the great disciples with heavenly flowers. All right, so this goddess appears. She's so delighted by the Dharma action that's happening. All these flowers start to rain down, right? When the flowers fell on the, bodhi on the bodies of the bodhisattvas, the flowers fell off onto the floor. But when they fell on the bodies of the great disciples, they stuck to them and did not fall off. The great disciples shook the flowers and even tried to use their magical powers, but still the flowers would not shake off. Then the goddess said to the venerable Shariputra, Venerable Shariputra, why do you shake these flowers off? Shariputra replied, Goddess, these flowers are not proper for religious people, and so we are trying to shake them off. And if you don't know, it's a rule in early Buddhism that you cannot wear adornments. Jewelry, garlands, earrings, bangles, it's no, no adornments. So here is 
the disciples, they're getting the garlands stuck to them, right? So then the goddess said, do not say that, Reverend Shariputra. And why? These flowers are proper indeed. Why? Such flowers have neither constructual thought nor discrimination. But the elder Shariputra has both constructual thought and discrimination. Reverend Shariputra, impropriety for one who has renounced the world for the discipline of the rightly taught Dharma consists of constructual thought and discrimination. Impropriety, did you hear? Impropriety consists of constructual thought and discrimination. Yet the elders are full of such thoughts. One who is without such thoughts is always proper. And there's this use of the elders. Specifically, this word thera is in the elders. So the theravada is the way of the elders. It's explicitly what's being critiqued here. And, he's, and the goddess is saying that all of those, the, uh, the, the elders are full of constructual thought and discrimination. Like, I shouldn't be wearing garlands. They're bad. That is a total constructual thought full of discrimination, right? So one who is without such constructed thoughts and discrimination is always proper. Reverend Shariputra, see how these flowers don't stick to the bodies of those great spiritual heroes, the bodhisattvas? It's because they have eliminated all constructual thoughts and discriminations. For example, evil spirits have power over fearful men but cannot disturb the fearless. Likewise, those intimidated by fear of the world are in the power of forms, sounds, smells, tastes, and textures, which do not disturb those who are free from fear of the passions inherent in this constructed world. Thus, these flowers stick to the bodies of those who have not eliminated their instincts for the passions and do not stick to the bodies of those who have eliminated their instincts. Therefore, the flowers do not stick to the bodies of bodhisattvas, who have well abandoned all instincts. Then the Venerable Sariputra said to the goddess, Goddess, how long have you been how long have you been in this house? The goddess replied, I've been here as long as the elder has been in liberation. Shariputra said, Wow, then you must have been in this house for a long time. He says that. <laughs> then you then you must have been in this house for quite some time, is what it says. The goddess says, has the elder been in liberation for quite some time? At that, the elder Shariputra fell silent. The goddess continued, Elder, you are the foremost of the wise. Why don't you speak? Now, when it's your turn, you don't answer my question. And Shariputra said, Since liberation is inexpressible, goddess, I don't know what to say. The goddess said, all the syllables pronounced by the elder have the nature of liberation. Why? Liberation is neither internal nor external, nor can it be apprehended apart from the internal and external. Likewise, this is crazy, meditate on this. Likewise, syllables are neither internal nor external, nor can they be apprehended anywhere else. Have you ever thought about that? Whether a syllable is internal or external? I'm telling you, that's like, like you could sit on that for a while. Like, I mean, especially if you were doing a chanting, like an om, because it's like, om. Yeah, is that internal? Or is it external? Again, or it's not, not free from both, but it's neither nor. 
Ya. Oke, oke. It's uh, oh my gosh. Liberation night. Likewise, syllables are neither inter- therefore, Reverend Shariputra, do not point to liberation by abandoning speech. This is important for later on too, by the way. Why? Because the holy liberation is the equality of all things. Goddess. So Shariputra says, Goddess, is not liberation the freedom from desire, hatred, and delusion? So that's like classic Buddhism 101 for a, ther- for a Theravada. Goddess, isn't liberation the freedom from desire, hatred, and delusion? The three poisons. The goddess says liberation is freedom. Sorry, <laughs> it's in quotes. Liberation from free, liberation is freedom from desire, hatred, and delusion. That is the teaching for the excessively proud. But those free of pride are taught that the very nature of desire, hatred, and delusion is itself liberation. Yeah, things are now uh, starting to turn. This is going to be like, okay, but I'm going to help try, I'm going to try to make sense of it. Hold on. Those free of pride are taught that the very nature of desire, hatred, and delusion is itself liberation. Shariputra says, excellent, excellent goddess. Pray, what have you attained? What have you realized that you have such eloquence? And the goddess says, I have attained nothing, Reverend Shariputra. I have no realization. Therefore, I have such eloquence. Whoever thinks I have attained, I've realized, is overly proud in the discipline of the well-taught dharma. Shariputra says, Goddess, do you belong to the Shravaka vehicle, the Pratekya Buddha vehicle, the solitary Buddha path, or to the great vehicle, the Mahayana? These are the three vehicles, discourse in Buddhism about these, the, the voice hearer path, small for the elite, the Pratekya Buddha path for people that just want to go off into a cave and meditate their life away, and then this Mahayana path of the Bodhisattva. And he says, Goddess, do you belong to the Shravaka path, Pratekya Buddha path, or the Mahayana path? The Goddess says, I belong to the disciple vehicle when I teach it to those in need of it. I belong to the solitary vehicle path when I teach the 12 links of dependent origination to those who need that. And since I never abandon great compassion, I belong to the great vehicle, the Mahayana, as all need that teaching to attain ultimate liberation. Nevertheless, Reverend Shariputra, just as one cannot smell the castor plant in a magnolia wood, but, not, but only the magnolia flower, so Reverend Shariputra, living in this house, which is redolent with the perfume of the virtues of the all Buddha qualities, one does not smell the perfume of the disciples or the solitary Buddhas. Reverend Shariputra, the Chakras, the Brahmas, the Lokapalas, the Devas, the Nagas, the Yakshas, the Gandharavas, the Suras, Garudas, Kamnaras, and Maharagas, who live in this house, they hear the Dharma from the mouth of this holy man Vimalakirti, and enticed by the perfume of the virtues of all Buddha qualities, proceed to conceive the spirit of enlightenment. Reverend Shariputra, I have been in this house for 12 years, and I have heard no discourses concerning the disciples, the solitary Buddhas, 
but I've only heard those concerning the great love, the great compassion, and the inconceivable qualities of the Buddhas. Reverend Shariputra, eight strange and wonderful things manifest themselves constantly in this house. What are the eight? A light of golden hue shines here constantly, so bright that it is hard to distinguish day from night, and neither the moon nor the sun shines here distinctly. That is the first wonder of this house. Furthermore, Shariputra, whoever enters this house is no longer troubled by his passions from the moment he is within it. That is the second strange and wonderful thing about this house. Furthermore, Shariputra, this house is never forsaken by Chakra Brahma or the Lokapalas and all Bodhisattvas from all other Buddha fields. That is the third strange and wonderful thing about this house. Uh, it's never empty of the sounds of the Dharma. It always, this house, in this house, one always hears the rhymes, songs, and musics of, music of gods and men. That's the fifth strange and wonderful thing about the house. Um, there are always four inexhaustible treasures replete with all kinds of jewels, which never decrease. That's the sixth strange and wonderful thing. Um, to this house come innumerable Buddhas of the Ten Directions, of which some are named. Um, Buddhas shine forth in this house. That's the eighth wonderful, and that's the eighth one, strange and wonderful thing about this house. Reverend Shariputra, these eight strange and wonderful things are seen in this house. Who then, seeing such inconceivable things, would believe the teaching of the disciples? The suckers. <laughs> so, everybody good? Shariputra, goddess. What prevents you from transforming yourself out of your female state? <laughs> so I will preface this. So in addition to all of these, oh, don't wear garlands, don't sleep on a high bed. Of course, one of the big ones in Theravada Buddhism is that, sorry ladies, but if you are the hardest core Monastic. You follow all the rules. All you do is meditate day and night. Your best, highest hope is rebirth as a man so that you can do it all over again in order to become a Buddha. There is this, in, in early Theravada Buddhism, there is this, eh, women are inferior, sorry, and men are superior, sorry, and you need to go through the man path. That is what's being addressed here, by the way. So if you ever heard that or you knew that and you were like, does that seem a little ignorant and discriminatory? <laughs> Listen up. <laughs> so Shariputra, who just got schooled on all of this, is basically like, what's keeping you from transforming yourself out of this female form? Goddess, the goddess says, Although I have looked for this female form for these 12 years, I have yet to find it. Reverend Shariputra, if a magician were to incarnate a woman by magic, would you ask her what prevents you from transforming yourself out of your female state? Shariputra says, no, such a woman would not really exist. So what would there be to transform? Just so, Shariputra, all things do not really exist. Now, what do you think? What prevents one who has, sorry. So what do you think? 
What prevents one whose nature is that of a magical incarnation from transforming herself out of her female state? She, he's, she asks him this rhetorical question, right? There, so, oh my gosh. Thereupon, thereupon, the goddess employed her magical power to cause the elder Shariputra to appear in her form and to cause herself to appear in his form. Yes, this is happening. In a sutra 2,000 years old, this is happening. Then, then the goddess transformed, then the goddess transformed into Shariputra, said the Shariputra transformed into the goddess, Reverend Shariputra, what prevents you from transforming yourself out of your female form? And Shariputra, transformed into the goddess, replied, I no longer appear in the form of a male. My body has changed into the body of a woman. I don't know what to transform. (laughs) The goddess continued, if the elder could again change out of the female form, then all women could also change out of their female states, forms. All women appear in the form of women in just the same way as the elder appears in the form of a woman. While they are not women in reality, they appear in the form of a woman. With this in mind, the Buddha said, in all things there is neither male nor female. Then the goddess released her magical power and each returned to his ordinary form. She then said to him, Reverend Shariputra, what have you done with your female form? And Shariputra says, I neither, I neither made it, nor did I change it. Just so, the goddess says, all things are neither made nor changed. And they, and they are not made and not changed. That is the teaching of the Buddha. That's actually a very profound teaching of the Buddha. That is also like, meditate on that. So Shariputra asks, goddess, where will you be born when you try transmigrate after death? And the goddess says, I will be born where all the magical incarnations of the Tathagata are born. Shariputra says, but the emanated incarnations of the Tathagata, the Buddha, do not transmigrate, nor are they born. Goddess says, all things and all living beings are just like that. They do not transmigrate, nor are they born. Shariputra says, goddess, how soon will you attain the perfect enlightenment of Buddhahood? The goddess says, at such a time as you, elder, become endowed once more with the qualities of an ordinary individual, then I will attain the perfect enlightenment of Buddhahood. But goddess, it's impossible that I should become endowed once more with the qualities of an ordinary individual. Just so, Reverend Shariputra, it is impossible that I should attain the perfect enlightenment of Buddhahood. Why? Because perfect enlightenment stands upon the impossible. Because it is impossible, no one attains the perfect enlightenment of Buddhahood. Shariputra says, but the Tathagata has declared, the Tathagatas, the Buddhas, who are as numerous as the sands of the Ganges, have attained perfect Buddhahood, are attaining perfect Buddhahood, and will go on to attain perfect Buddhahood. The goddess said, Reverend Shariputra, the expression, the Buddhas of the past, 
the Buddhas of the present and the Buddhas of the future is a conventional expression made up of a certain number of syllables. The Buddhas are neither past nor present nor future. Their enlightenment transcends all time. But tell me, Elder, have you attained arhathood? Shariputra says, it is attained because there is no attainment. Just so, the goddess says, there is perfect enlightenment because there is no attainment of perfect enlightenment. Then the Lichavi Vimalakirti said to Shariputra, Reverend Shariputra, this goddess has already served 92 million billion Buddhas. <laughs> she plays with all the super knowledges. She has truly succeeded all her vows. She's gained the tolerance of the birthlessness of things. She has actually attained irreversibility. She can live wherever she wishes on the strength of her vow to develop all living beings. That's the chapter on the goddess. Questions? (laughs) Pretty self-explanatory, I would say. Mm-hmm. That was the one about it being neither nor. Where was it? Duh, duh, duh. Okay. Ah, so um, when she asks Shariputra, she asks Shariputra. Um, so what happened to your female body <laughs> after she transforms us back? And he says, I, I neither made it nor did I change it, right? So just so, this is what she says, just so, all things are neither made nor changed and that they are not made and not changed, that is the teaching of the Buddha. That they are not made and not changed. This is very related to what got mentioned at the end about her, which is that she has gained the tolerance of the birthlessness of all things. Um, I think I might, well, we might get a little into the next chapter, but I am going to not try to do the rest of the sutra tonight. And I would probably like to just do a little talk about this idea of not created nor changed, which is related to because I haven't been reading this line for line, I haven't said it repeatedly. Every chapter of this and throughout, it's talking a lot about the tolerance of the birthlessness of all things. And that at certain points in this, people achieve the tolerance of the birthlessness of all things. Like it's like, oh, oh, okay. So I kind of... It's directly in line with everything that's being talked about. The, the male-female thing going on here with the goddess and Shariputra, um, everything. So, and it's directly related to this question of all things being neither made nor changed. All right, so we'll, we'll talk about that. Any other questions, though, ideas, just so I can kind of conglomerate any questions or ideas? Yeah? Given up pride, is that like like a 
be posted. I think I remember last week you said that there's like pride is there all the way until the third path or something. And that after oh, this right. might have been a different night. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, actually, <laughs> let me, allow me then to get into the next chapter. I, I wanted to do it, and I think I should because it answers this. Okay, but I want to hear what you're saying. No, 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 saying. yeah, yeah. Oh, and I'm going to get to all the, the, the birthlessness of all things. Um, but on that note, just because actually this, yeah, I'd rather do this now rather than start here next week. So chapter eight is called The Family of the Tathagatas. And if you were here last week, you'll remember that in the second chapter, when Vimalakirti first pretends to be sick and everybody comes, he gives a Dharma talk. And his Dharma talk, he basically says, yo, everybody, this body is, it's dying, it's falling apart. You would be wise not to identify with this body. You'd be wiser to basically identify with the Buddha body, the Tathagata, the Dharmakaya, the Dharma body. And so Vimalakirti does this teaching where he says, yeah, don't identify with the body of death and shit and pus. Identify with the body of wisdom, the Dharmakaya. And so there is this thing, the reason why this is called the family of the Tathagatas or the family of the Buddhas is because there is this thing that goes on in Mahayana Buddhism where you, uh, and, and if you're upper level bodhisattva, this does not apply to you, but in general, <laughs> you identify with your death body. You identify with the body that was vaginally born and the body that's destined for the grave. That's what we identify with. And so insofar as we are identifying with that flesh body, vaginally born, destined for the grave, there's a way in which, yes, I'm of my family, the Owenses and all of that, but that identification puts me in the family of man, the family of humans that also think they were vaginally born and bound for death. So we're all one big human family, vaginally born, bound for death. Like that's, that's that family, that's this family, right? The idea is, is that you could actually then stop identifying with that body and identify with the Buddha body, the Dharmakaya. And there would be a kind of, and Buddhism uses this language of born again, rebirth in that body. And now you're not a family member of your, your flesh family or your human family of man family. You're now a family member of the Buddhas, brothers and sisters with the Bodhisattvas kind of a thing. Whole new mentality, a whole new idea of who you are. So rather than a being, a sentient being, you're an enlightenment being, a bodhisattva. So this chapter is about being part of the Buddha family. And Sri says to Vimalakirti, noble sir, how does the bodhisattva follow the way to attain the qualities of the Buddha? So how do you become a Buddha? How do you develop such qualities of a Buddha? Manjushri, or Vimalakirti replied to Manjushri, Manjushri, when the Bodhisattva follows the wrong way, he follows the way to attain the qualities of the Buddha. Did I, did, 
Did I read that right? Mandrashrikatini. How does the Bodhisattva follow the wrong way? The Malakirti replied, even should he enact the five deadly sins, he feels no malice, violence, or hatred. Even should he go into the hell realms, he remains free from all taints and passions. Even should he go into the states of the animals, he remains free of darkness and ignorance. Um, I'm going to skip ahead because it, it grows with all this. Da, da, da. Um, the Bodhisattva who's trying to become a Buddha, he follows the ways of, of the unorthodox without ever becoming unorthodox. He follows the ways of the world, yet he reverses all states of existence. He follows the way of liberation without ever abandoning the progress of the world. Manjushri, thus does the Bodhisattva follow the wrong ways, thereby following the way of the qualities of the Buddha. Then the Malakirti said to Manjushri, Manjushri, what is this family of the Tathagatas? Noble sir, the family of the Tathagatas consists of all basic egoism. Of egoism. That's what the, the family of Tathagata consists of. Ego, egotism. Of ignorance and the thirst for existence. Uh, greed, hatred, delusion... Uh, the four misapprehensions of reality, the five obstructions, um, obviously the six sense media, um, the seven consciousnesses, eight false paths, um, the ten great sins, all of that, such as the family of the Tathagatas. In short, noble sir, the 62 erroneous views is the family of the Tathagatas. So right now you're like, time out, time out. Everything I just learned about Buddhism is being turned on its head and you're telling me the family of the Tathagatas is actually the wrong views, having the wrong view, having the three poisons, all this stuff, right? So Vimalakirti says to Manjushri, Manjushri, with what in mind do you say this? So Manjushri says all this about it being the opposite and Vimalakirti says, what makes you say all that? And he says, noble sir, one who stays in the fixed, these are giant, Ideas. One who stays in the fixed determination of the vision of the uncreated is not capable of conceiving the spirit of unexcelled perfect enlightenment. Fixed determination of the vision of the uncreated is a fancy way of saying nirvana. Total liberation. No fixed... (laughs) determined vision of an uncreated reality. Originally, that was actually what the Buddha told the people to do. Yeah, find nirvana, find an unconstructed reality and chill out there. And he's saying, basically, one who stays in the fixed determination of the vision of an uncreated is not capable of conceiving the spirit of unexcelled perfect enlightenment. However, one who lives among created things in the minds of passions, without seeing any truth, is indeed capable of conceiving the spirit of unexcelled perfect enlightenment. Noble sir, flowers like the blue lotus, the red lotus, and the white lotus, the water lily, and the moon lily, they do not, draw, they do not grow on the dry ground in the wilderness, but they grow in the swamps and mud banks. Just so, the Buddha qualities do not grow in living beings certainly destined for the uncreated, but they do grow in those living beings who are like swamps and mud banks of passion. Likewise, as seeds do not grow in the sky, 
but do grow in the earth. So the Buddha qualities do not grow in those determined for the absolute, but they do grow in those who conceive the spirit of enlightenment. After having produced a Sumeru like mountain of egotistical views. <laughs> did you did you hear that? <laughs> Buddha qualities do not grow in those determined for the absolute, but they do grow in those who conceive the spirit of enlightenment after having produced a Maru like mountain of egotistical views. Noble sir. Through these considerations, one can understand that all passions constitute the family of the Tathagatas. For example, Nova Sir, without going out into the great ocean, it is impossible to find precious, priceless pearls. Likewise, without going into the ocean of passions, it is impossible to obtain the mind of omniscience. There's more. There's actually a beautiful poem in which all of this gets relayed in beautiful poetic form. But did you see what happened there? you probably had the same thought I did, which is like, no, 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 no. Liberation is not in the three poisons. Liberation is not delusion. No, no. But all of a sudden, by the way, this is the source for the famous lotus grows out of the mud. This is the source for it. it. It never gets quoted properly because... It's tricky within the context of this, so it always gets quoted as, as some other way. But the source for that idea is from this. And do you see the idea? There is a whole discourse in Buddhism that being born a human is like rare, special, important, because it kind of sucks. <laughs> the idea is, is that it, it's because it is slightly irritating here, if not really irritating. <laughs> That we are, that we're pushed out of it. That's the message of this chapter. You should know, though, that a chapter like this, where it starts talking about how, like, the five obstructions and the ignorance and desire and passions are the qualities of the Buddha, this is where Tantra comes from. This is where esoteric Buddhism comes from. The so-called left-handed path has everybody heard that expression, left-handed path? So tantrism in India is traditionally called the left-handed path because traditionally in India, because of various customs, you eat with your right hand and shake people's hands with your right hand and you wipe your ass with your left hand. And so you don't eat with your left hand. You would never present your left hand to anybody. The left hand is totally impure. The right hand is pure. It's the Dexter sinister thing going on. So that's what happens in Tantra, though, is that in, you know, it's too late to get too into it, but in this attempt towards non dualism, towards sort of like liberation from dualisms, they will use the left hand in traditional tantric practices. Rather than from abstaining from sex, you try to go through sex. Instead of abstaining from uh, intoxicants, psychedelics, and all of that, you go through psychedelics and intoxicants. Now, it's a path. And I want you to know where the ideology for that path comes from. And it comes from this lotus flower, the idea that we're in the passionate world and it's out of the passionate world that we get liberated. 
in tantrism, in Buddhism, esoteric Buddhism, it's not an excuse to have sex. It's not an excuse to do psychedelics. It's not an excuse to like just have fun because Buddha said it's okay. It's just that for certain mentalities and temperaments and people of certain karmic situations, they can go through sexuality, for example. But if you hear of you know, tantric sex, you hear of tantrism that uses sexuality, keep in mind the image of two people, two serious practitioners, a man and a woman that are like hardcore meditators that are then going to meditate in coitus. So the man has to be fully aroused. There is a, a kind of an emergence of orgasm, if you will, of sexual energy. But both people are basically trying to maintain this non-passionate, non-aroused attitude towards it. They're trying to be totally aloof, but in it, and then together kind of use that energy to go through it to enlightenment. It's not about a five-hour orgasm or any of these whatever, you know, um, uh, urban myths that get thrown around and stuff like that. It's actually a really advanced practice of going through, like rather than avoiding, it's going through it. And it's not for everybody. The basic idea is, is that most people couldn't handle this. They would get attached to the sex. They would get attached to the visions of psychedelia, all of that. But it is a path. And the logic of it comes from a chapter like this, where we're already in that world. Running, trying to run away from it is another discriminatory act of the mind. Okay. So that's that beautiful chapter on being born in the family of the Tathagatas or the Buddhas. Chapter 9 is a good place to start next week. So we'll spend the last uh, few 20 minutes or so talking about the to- developing the tolerance for the birthlessness of all things. Do I really have to explain it then? <laughs> okay. So... There's, interestingly, this is not a, um, uh, a vipassana, an insight. It's not a, a liberation, the inconceivable liberation, which is what allowed everybody to sit on their giant chairs or even just to conceive of the notion of sitting on a giant chair. That was a liberation, a liberation called inconceivable. This is actually a tolerance So you're developing a tolerance for this idea, which is interesting unto itself. So we're developing a tolerance towards the birthlessness of all things. So the main idea to be familiar with is There's the notion of an Atman, which is a self, but it's not just like, it's the soul, the essence, one's soul, one's essence. And of course, 
the Buddha came along and said, guess what, everybody? I know, I know, I know. It seems like you exist. I get it. But actually, <laughs> actually, there's no self. An Atman. No Atman. And in early, this is the first teaching of the Buddha. This is what the Buddha came to teach. Even in Theravada, early Buddhism, all of that. Even in early Buddhism, though, and then this idea gets way expounded in Mahayana Buddhism, it's important to know that the notion of a self or no self, it's better, it's more helpful to think of Atman and no Atman as like an essence. And the reason why I say this is because self is misleading because you think the Buddha or Buddhism is just talking about um, things with eyes and ears and nose and tongue, mammals or something like that. What essence or Atman means is, is that even, even an object has the perceived Atman, a perceived essence, a perceived um, singularity. Bull, right? So the belief, if you will, better to say the view, the view that I have in my hand, one thing, and that one thing is called a bowl. That bowl, notion of bowl, is an Atman, a self. So it's very important in Buddhism that when you hear this word self, that you know they're not just talking about beings, sentient beings. They're talking about anything you can conceive of. A bowl, a table, a microphone, chair, it doesn't matter. But what happens is, is that we have the notion of one thing. One thing. And I call that one thing a bull. The Buddha came along and said, I know that it appears that way, but that appearance is actually because you have the word. Not because it's actually there. So guess what? There's no Atman. There's no self. And that goes for what we traditionally perceive of as selves, Atman. Buddha said no Atman. Actually, five skandhas, five elements dancing around, constantly changing. Never the same one moment to the next. Nothing ever to grab onto and say, that's me, just like that, 44 years old, looking like that, that's me. Oh, no, I'm not that person anymore, right? Just like that, I'm not that person anymore. So there's constant change. That's one reason why empty, constant change, nothing ever to be. It's a very important part of this idea of emptiness is that it's not that the bowl is empty. It's that the concept bowl is, is not there. This is where logic and philosophy come into play with this idea of, of emptiness because I'm not saying the bowl is empty because that would be to say there's a bowl that's empty. No, 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 no bowl, no bowl, no. 
That's just an idea that your mind is throwing on to what it perceives to be hollow, round. Hollow, round, bull. Hollow, round, bull. That's all that's happening in your mind. Hollow, round, bull. Oh, there's a bull. But the bull is being thrust onto it. Individuality. Singularity, right? Because we are all of this, like, Western scientific mind, arguably, where we already think this is a zillion molecules, Right? We already, in a way, know, quote, know, or think that this isn't one. Buddhism is just asking you to sort of lean into what you already know to be true and then take a step back and recognize that the word bull is just a label that you're, you've thrown onto that, but then slaps you right back into the face as if it's a real thing that you could hand to somebody because they would say, hey, that's a nice bull. <laughs> So does everybody kind of get no self? No self meaning no bull. Like, oh, look, a bull, right? So, oh, look, a bull. I have in my mind this idea of a bull, and that's all it is, an idea in my mind that's being thrown onto some information in space. Is everybody following me on that? So if... This just appears to be a bull, but that in actuality there is no bull. Then, in terms of the the chapter right before we just read, this quote-unquote bull that I just clearly explained to you is a figment of your imagination, right? So that figment of your imagination bull, where was that made? What country? Bangladesh? China? Where was that bowl made? Ah, maybe that bowl was made in elementary school (laughs) when you got conditioned to call round hollow things bowl. Maybe that's where that bowl came from. But the bowl that I'm mistaking to be real, right? The, The idea of a bowl. What country was that bowl made in? If I ask that question right, all I'm doing is sharing with you my ignorance. No, that I don't understand the nature of the bowl if I'm asking what country it was made in, right? So when the Buddha says all things are not made and not changed, the other thing to do would be, so if we understand that bowl is just being projected and is not real, and therefore, it's just the idea of a bull. And idea bulls aren't manufactured by kids in Bangladesh. They're not manufactured at all. They're, or they, again, they might be produced conditionally in elementary school or something like that, right? So in addition to this word self, and it doesn't just mean mammals or things with eyeballs and such, We're going to say that all things, anything you conceive of, a piece of lint, a tassel, whatever it is, you have the notion of singularity because you have a word for it. And then you have the notion of a thing. But Buddha is saying that that thing is just that, an idea, and therefore it is anatman, has no self, is therefore empty. In the same way that we're talking about objects having selves, Buddhism will then talk about all things being birthed, i.e. created or made, 
You follow me on this? So when I was talking about where was this made in Bangladesh and China, in Buddhist lingo, we would be talking about its birth, where it came from. Where did you come from? Where were you born? Where was this born? There was a moment, arguably for the, for the unenlightened, there was a moment where this didn't exist. And then in some foundry or somewhere, ting, 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 oh, it exists. It didn't exist before, but finally I got that one, I pounded it out, and now it exists. And it exists, and then it will eventually not exist. It will change, decay, and fall apart. All of that, though, the idea of it being created, the idea of it being, and the idea of it being destroyed is all predicated on the false notion of an Atman, of a thing here. I already told you, idea bowls aren't made anywhere. They're made on the spot in your mind, dependently originated, right? So the birthlessness of this bowl, the idea of the birthlessness means that this bowl didn't come from anywhere, spatially, temporally. It didn't come from another country, and it didn't come from before. What happened is, is I went, bam! And everybody went, bowl! That's what happened. And, and as soon as that happened, and because that happened, you would then start to wonder, well, then where did it come from? And when, where is it going? But the idea is, is that I went, Bam! And everybody immediately threw onto this bowl, and that's when this bowl came into existence. It's actually the only time it's coming into existence is in your mind projecting onto this the notion or idea of bowl. So it has no, the bowl, remember the bowl, no essence, no Atman, no self, and therefore birthless. If you're cool with that, then you have achieved the tolerance of the birthlessness of all things. Because this philosophy that we're describing goes for anything and everything you could possibly conceive of. An eyelash. Anything, as big or as small, it doesn't matter. If your mind delineates an object and then slaps a name on it, that process of delineating a single object and then calling it something is all taking place in your mind. It has nothing to do with external reality. In fact, when Buddhism really gets into talking about external reality, the so-called world of form, it, it does not look anything like this world. So in early Buddhism, there's this notion that there's the notion that there's something out there. There's something out there that my mind is then putting labels of bowls and use value. I can put my cereal in it and, and aesthetic values of it's pretty and sounds nice. The idea is, yeah, my mind's throwing all these things, but they're throwing it onto something. In Mahayana Buddhism, they realized, oh, it's just that process of throwing and then looking at it like a mirror. I, I often say, use the expression, these things, eyes, 
ears. These aren't windows to the world. They're mirrors. We think of them as windows to the external world. I, as a Buddhist, think of these as mirrors. That what you are seeing here in front of you here is your own mind. The way your mind discriminates the world into objects and things. The way your mind does stuff. You are not looking at the external world. You're looking at a form of your mind. That's the idea. And within that, within the enlightened view that you are looking at a mirror, ah, how does Vimalakirti say we should view all living beings? Like a face in a mirror. Right? So, here I have a mirror. And oh, look, there's your face, right? This person here, is it a sentient being? This one, no? This, is it a sentient being? Where was this person born? You're, you're missing, the, these are wrong questions, right? If I'm asking where this being was born, I have only demonstrated that I don't realize this is reflection. I think it's real. Buddha is saying when I do this and I mistake you for being a human being that was born somewhere destined for, for dying, I'm missing it. This is a reflection in a mirror like the moon in a pond because of this very notion of selflessness. The delineation of a person into one thing. Hi, my name is Michael. One name, one thing, that's it. That's just the illusion. That's what Buddhism is saying is, yes, I get it. I get it that we all, our minds all have the ability to go mm, one thing, mm, one thing, one book. This is one, what planet are you on? Right? This, this can easily be summarized by a magic trick. <laughs> How many? How many? Twelve. Twelve? Are you doing the segments? Nice. Or the ph- uh, phalanges? Is that what they call those? So I-, I like this example when I say how many. Because it-, it points to the question that until I tell you how many what, you don't know. You don't know. What, one hand, five fingers, twelve phalanges. It's like who, who knows? Ah, That's the mind at work. How many ways can you discriminate this hand? How many ways can you chop this into five or this or that or this and that? The mind can go all night chopping stuff up. That's the whole point. But again, the point though is that it's the mind chopping this work. Like you walk in the room and go, oh, look at all those chairs and people. You've chopped this up into a big room full of chairs and people. It could be all kinds of crazy stuff going on in here. But as long as you're clinging to the vaginally born, grave-bound body, as long as you're clinging to that and clinging to singularity of bowls and chairs and clinging to all of that, then it looks like this. That's what it looks like. Questions, answers, ideas. Uh, that's, so yeah, the, I mean, again, the message from Vimalakirti throughout, from his first lesson all the way through, is this idea of emptiness. This is definitely, you know, a pranya wisdom type sutra, 
founded on emptiness, but also coming out of the Pure Land tradition, right? Because it's all about Buddha lands and the language of purifying Buddha lands and bodhisattvas and all of that. The miracle that happens at the end of this is like crazy, super crazy. Earlier, when you were talking about how we how we need to go through the, the the experience in order to be able to get to whatever it is we get to, um, it's uh, uh, the, the thought came to me about when I meditate and I drop in, and all of a sudden, you know, my thoughts they're there, but they're I'm not in them. I, I can sort of they're, they're seen, but they're not mm-hmm. me. Know, and and my sensations, I, I, I feel them, but they're not me, and I have that experience. So it seems the same with that idea as well. That you know, I'm in. Uh, I, I if I'm in a, a stressful situation at work, and if I can have that meditative mind separation, right, and I can see it, but it's not me. I, is that is that the experience of of the of the enlightenment? Yeah, yeah, it's kind of what I'm talking about. I mean, there's a lot involved in that metaphor of the coming out of the mud. Um, it's like I'm sorry. It's like when you when you made it more definitive with the tantric sex. Yep. It's like yes, you're you're in coitus, but you're holding the line as a meditation, so you're not you're not being swept away by it. And you're like, you know, so you can carry that through life. Yep. And I would add to that, just add to that. I think the really, a really baseline practical application of this, but all the way back to the, the wisdom of emptiness, the practical application of that, again, baseline, just the basic, basic thing is not getting too worked up about anything. <laughs> if you understand this idea of the emptiness, and if, and in particular, if you understand dependent origination, the idea, again, is that we think, oh, look at the bowl, and look at the chair, that as if it is 100% in the external world, and that I, again, just windows to the world. Oh, look, I'm just observing What's going on? That is ignorant from the Buddhist point of view. Dependent origination says that 50% or all the way up to 100% is actually coming from you. What you experience out in the world, again, is you. But insofar as you're kind of not into emptiness and all of that, you'll think it's out. If somebody's out there and, and whatever, they cut you off and you're all pissed off, it is 100% their fault. That is an ignorant point of view to say that your anger, your being upset is 100% their fault. More like it's 100% your fault because you're the one being upset. You're the one that actually has the power to not be upset. So that's the practicality of this is that, of de- especially the p- dependent origination, you are a contributing member of everything you're experiencing. So the, the whole phrase that, you know, when you point the finger, there's three or four more pointing back at you, that old one, it's really true in Buddhism. 
that the moment you're like, oh, yeah, that guy's got a real problem. This guy has four more problems. Discriminating people's one of them is the idea. <laughs> That's actually a big message for the shravakas in this, is that idea of like discriminating the flowers. Discrimination is the problem, buddy, not the flowers. That's a big message of this. Flowers are not defiled, bad, impure, anything. But having a discriminative attitude towards them that says flowers are bad, now that's impure. Yeah. So why is this a tolerance and not an insight? Great question. Great question. I don't know. I am... I, I bring these things to your attention because they come to my attention. Where I'm reading it, I'm like, oh, it's a tolerance, not an insight and not a liberation. Fascinating. And I, you know, as a Buddhist teacher, I can kind of vibe like, oh, wow, interesting. And, and by the way, this idea of tolerance, we're talking about uh, kshanti. This is a paramita of like patience or tolerance for things. And so this idea that it's an act of patience the birthlessness of all things, you must be patient with that. That's an interesting... I, again, it's like, I don't have a specific answer. It's just sort of a, isn't that curious that it is a tolerance, a kashanti, not pranya wisdom, penetrating wisdom into the nature of all things, but actually that just you're cool with the birthlessness of all things. I would suggest that it has to do with Manjushri's question about like, yo, how are we supposed to love everybody if they don't exist? So I would say that the tolerance for birthlessness is that you know beings don't exist, but you are still going to give unconditionally, constantly towards them. There's sort of a kind of a tolerance in that, in a way. As well as wisdom, absolutely. One has to have pranya wisdom to, to even conceive of these things, like no self and all of that. But yeah, it's just curious. Is that kind of like being able to manage like cognitive dissonance because I mean there's a lot of that I think when sometimes when we're looking at some of these ideas because of the, the paradoxical mm-hmm. nature I was wondering that and also you were talking about like when you were talking about us you know throwing onto the ball or you know that, that driver with you know, mm-hmm. that guy or whatever is that what the Dave is talking about saying neither internal nor external but also Everything is internal and external. Like, it's both. And it, it both yeah, oh, oh, sure. That's very insightful. Indeed. That the language about not internal or external, but not free of being internal or external, again, is like a very profound meditation. Um, anapanasati, uh, breath awareness, is probably the direct way of meditating on that because breath is really weird. Because it, it starts outside, goes all the way inside, and then goes out again. So breathing is in, an internal, external thing. And if you really meditate, like while you're sitting, meditate on that, it's like, oh. Or the syllable. Or the syllable, indeed. And like I said, if you're chanting, doing a chant of Om or something, and you're meditating, like, wow, this syllable is starting here. Like, wow, it's really... So there's, there's that... I think this idea that I, I was saying about dependent origination, that remember, you're bringing most of what you're experiencing. You, you might be pointing the finger out there, but you're bringing most of it. That is sort of pointing at the whole 
internal, external thing, but not really. Not really. I would say the next chapter we're going to do when we come back next week is entering the Dharma door of non-duality. It's what the chapter's called. Entering the Dharma door of non-duality. And it's a whole chapter about non-duality. I would say, you know, that the, definitely the talk about not internal or external is about non-duality. Because that notion of inside my body, organs, blood, pus, shit, all that, right? That's all inside my body. And then there's all these people outside, the book's outside, so there's outside my body. That, from a Mahayana point of view, is the kernel of the problem of believing in a self. Because that axis of inside-outside is the, 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 the boundary line of yourself. It is what allows you to believe in yourself. I mean, and whenever we're talking about dependent origination, we know that these ideas arise simultaneously. It's not that one causes the other. So there's a way in which that because I'm attached to myself, there's an external and an internal. Or because I believe in an external and internal, there's a clinging to a self. You see how that works? So the understanding of internal external is deeply bound up in the notion of self and individuality. I just got done talking for a half hour about how there's no self or individuality. So what happens is you believe in a self and individuality and then create this line in the sand that says, yeah, and that's not me. This is me. Yep, those little hairs are me. And inside is me. And this breath is me. And I don't know when it stops being me. And again, you could meditate on the breath and be like, when does the breath stop being me? and become one of the things that's not me, right? Do you see what's going on here? It's all in our heads. These, the, everything I'm doing is trying to, dis, like my monkey wrench, trying to dismantle the world we have built for ourselves based on linguistics and all these structures. And the idea of all of this Mahayana stuff is, isn't it crazy when you start unraveling all this, you realize, oh my God, something is cr- as subtle and intimate as my breath, I don't know if it's me or not me. Or when it stops being me. It was it ever me? Right? It's wild to think about. And it kind of just, it kind of points a, a spotlight on our presumptions, our assumptions about this world. Yeah. I'm thinking about how in spoken language, which is the language most of us use, words are based on breath. I mean, language is based on breath. There are other ways to communicate without it. but And yet that's not um, why words are uh, dangerous. No, no, because you know, a- ASL, American Sign Language, and reinforcing notions with ASL would amount to the same right, thing. Right. Reification of objects as singular objects, all kinds of things. So it's really l- communication and language, right. and that takes many forms. But it is interesting. It is. For humans, on the whole, languages, breath stopped and started. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. Yeah. Um, first, 
like the thing that strikes me is how much of a critique of Theravada this book is. Like at so many levels, um, like the transcendence of the self, like the right wrong mentality. Mm. Um, yeah, I feel like almost that's the purpose of the book uh, for me is really to say, okay, we're just doing that differently. But also, I'm just curious. That's a very silly curiosity. But like Shariputra is is this a character that comes back because he's really like the buffoon like in this thank you yeah if i didn't mention that last week or ever the reason why shariputra is the buffoon in this is that because shariputra within the theravada tradition is considered the smartest he's considered the one that is the smartest about emptiness within the theravada context impermanence within the theravada context so he represents that whole school. And it's why I, as like both a historian and kind of like a guy that's into literature, I like to come out right away and say, don't get hung up on these, like, are, were these historical figures? Was Vimalakirti real? You miss a lot. If you're wondering, was this a real occasion where Shariputra got his ass handed to him? No. <laughs> Shariputra represents all of Theravada Buddhism. And so all of Theravada Buddhism is asking all of Mahayana Buddhism a question. And all of Mahayana Buddhism is telling Theravada Buddhism the answer. If you read it in that context, it's in many ways a little more illuminating. If you don't get hung up on the historicity and actually know these people represent and stand for things. The Malakirti represents something. The goddess represents something, right? Very powerful exchange, right? All of a sudden, especially that line where Shariputra is like, I wouldn't know what to, to, to change. Because it's like, yeah, am I identifying with my genitalia? Am I identifying with my mind? It's all really, really um, relevant, I would say, to, again, 2,000 years old. But, wow, these, these ideas and these concepts are very alive today. And, and I really would... I'd be hard-pressed to find a suture that was more progressive in that sense, where the politic of it and the ethic of it is so applicable to now. Almost every suture I read, I gotta... There's a few lines I gotta, like... Sweep under the rug, you know, like, uh, that was a thousand years ago, you know. But this one is, like, almost impeccable in its consistency, where it's, like, yeah, I, I don't know. I really couldn't, can't uh, praise it enough for that. Questions, ideas, answers? It seems like, we, did we talk about kind of, like, I like the part where he sort of, like, don't idealize Buddhahood as, as something sort of, that's messing up your attainment. Like by making it some like magical um, absolutely Malakutri is going to the strip clubs and kicking it he's just, but he's still he's still keeping it real I mean, he's yep. still keeping it uh, holy or yep. whatever, whatever the word is yep and so it's like he's yeah, and, and you know, that, that <laughs> total middle path the Malakirti is definitely the middle path in that regard keep in mind that the, in original Theravada Buddhism Again, you have no rosaries, no high beds, no high chairs or thrones or things like that. But there's also this thing that you don't get to go to the movies. You don't get to go to the theater. You don't get to go to entertainment as a Buddhist, as a Theravada. So Vimalakirti, who goes to the plays and the theaters and the brothels and the casinos, 
but then goes there and try to teach people Dharma, that's a middle path where the idea of like, oh no, those are like unsavory places where bad people hang out and us monks are over here. We're so pure. That mentality of like, those people are bad because they're in the brothel and we're in the monastery and we're so pure and great, that is being critiqued here. And there's no Dharma in the shitty place. Exactly, but Vimalakirti's like, no, I'm going to go bring the Dharma to the brothels. I'm going to go teach everybody there, have a good time there, not be defiled by it, but actually try to purify that realm. I say this all the time, I don't want to get too straight, far afield, but early Buddhism was like, oh, look, sex, stuff, possessions, entertainment. I'm going to be over here. In fact, I'm going to try to get as far away from that stuff as possible. So I'm going to be over here thinking about all the stuff and all the sex I'm not having. (laughs) And so early Buddhism basically was like, that's the bad stuff, so get away from it. If you're a man, don't ever look at a woman again. If you're a Theravadin, the rules are that once you take vows, as a nun, you can't look at a man again. And if you're a monk, you can't look at a a woman again. And there's even conditions in that that if you have homosexual tendencies, then yeah, you don't get to look at men either or women. It doesn't matter. Whatever you would be enticed by, you are not allowed to look at them. So early Theravada was like genitalia, bad. Flowers, bad. All this stuff, bad. And Mahayana is the one that went, no, no, no. That's the bad. Attachment, discrimination. Flowers aren't bad, but discrimination towards them is bad. Sorry, no, <laughs> I don't want to go again, but it makes me think of like, you know, it, I mean, I learned about this stuff when I was younger, and I just was like, oh yeah, the assumption is when, if you do become enlightened or whatever, stream crap, all of a sudden you're just going to be like unable to be a human being normally again. Like right. you're just going to be like, you know, it's not even like you're not going to want to do all that stuff. It's like, yep. it's just like, Unable. And I love like state. It's like no, you're still going to be the dude that yep. you were. Yep. And dealing with the distractions. Yes. And hopefully getting to the like, but this shit's not real anyway. So like, exactly. Take it easy. Man. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Pure Mahayana, middle path, not discriminating good from the bad in that way. Um, and the Malakirti in particular does become the lay Buddhist's hero. Because until people like Vimalakirti came along, you either were looking at the monks who were really doing it and being like, I'm too lazy. Well, I'll give them money or I'll give them food because I'm too lazy. There was just wasn't a path. If you weren't willing to shave your head, give up everything you own, not have sex for the rest of your life and not look at basically and not get touched, by the way. That's the other thing. You don't, you don't get to get touched anymore. Humans? Basically. Fucking what? I'm just saying, Theravada has its problems. It has its problems. And it was a very austere practice. These these guys were not messing around. Not hugging it out. But the point remains the same, which is that until Mahayana and like the Malakirti lay Buddhist practice didn't exist. There was no model for it. It didn't, it was meaningless 
There was just, yeah, no model for being a lay Buddhist. But then you get a Vimalakirti and it's like, oh, I can have a house. I can even be married, have kids, all of that. But I have a model for what it looks like to do that dharmically or wisely or something like that. And this might be as early as is that, that austere bullshit or cool stuff. Exactly. Exactly. It might even have been at the same time where this group was like, yo, those guys are a little too serious. Yeah, so if you're on that team, we got a cool team over here, you know, and you can still eat cornflakes and stuff. Yes. The question about flowers. Yes. I'm looking at, you know, the the images that we have. So so if flowers are involved in the Buddhist artwork, is it of the Mahayana? Yes. Yeah, yes, yeah. I mean, you should know that early Theravada was kind of, um, they had like a... um, What's that called in, in Islam? Sh- uh, shirk. Or, uh, there's a great word in Islam for where you... Uh, it's, it's a sin in Islam to represent God. And in or Theravada, they were on that tip. That's why you had the empty throne or certain things like the wheel, the Dharma wheel, because they were like, yo, representing the Buddha, the, yeah, you don't want to do that. So early Buddhism had no iconography, no representation, except for these symbols like the wheel and the tree. Mahayana comes along and is like, no, 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 no. We're going to flood the world with Buddha images because they really strongly believe in, in Mahayana that just, just seeing this is like beneficial because of its peace, because of the message. The very idea is that just seeing it is powerful. And so they're like, yo, let's get these everywhere. Banksy style, Shepherd Fairly. Let's really plaster the world. So that's where you get the 10,000 Buddhas, where it's just thousands of Buddhas over and over, because they're like, yo, the more the merrier. Oh my God. Yeah. They were like tag stickers. Wow. Yes. Bus tags, that's awesome. Yes. It feels like, though, that um, currently we're really using like Tantra and all these things uh, without really realizing the emptiness. I feel like it's just a, we use that as an excuse, and I have an experience, I would say. Yeah, I mean, I'm always just on that. I always love this Buddhist idea that there's 84,000 different types of people. Buddhism has this idea that there are 84,000 types of people. And so if you've ever met someone that reminds you of somebody, but not because they look like them, but just because, like, they tell the same kind of jokes, and it's just like, you, you remind me just like my friend. He would say that. They would do that. Well, they're the same type in Buddhism. And there's 84,000 types. And so there's 84,000 different sutras for each of those types. For those that are into prana wisdom and crazy paradoxical statements. There's sutras for devotional people that just want to light some incense and pray. There's, uh, you name it, tantric ones for people that want to get their hands dirty and all kinds of stuff. I mean... The idea, though, is, is that Tantra is not for everybody. Pranya wisdom is not for everybody. Devotionalism isn't for everybody. You know, there's a notion that some people are just dying to surrender. They're just like, give me something to subject myself to. Those people actually probably don't need Pure Land Buddhism, and they probably need a more empowering like, type of uh, practice where actually it's not subjugating meek because they already are a little meek in, in that way. But it's, again, it's not for everybody. So the beauty of Mahayana Buddhism is that you read through these sutras and you find one that resonates with you. And it's like, oh, this one's for your type. We need a sutra matchmaker. Yeah. <laughs> Who's on it? Who wants to do the app? Who do the... No, no. 
All right, all right. We way over. I want to thank everybody so much. Yeah, yeah. Did you have a question? I was just wondering if he comes back in other sutras. Vimalakirti. Yeah. Well, I'll answer that next week because there's a surprise ending to who Vimalakirti really is. So yeah, we'll save that for next week. So thank you all so much.